Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am Scott Lenz, joined by my co-host and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. And Christian, it's a lovely day here on Cinema on Tap. We're on film three out of three for our supernatural horror keg that we have tapped for the month of October. That's true. As I often like to ask when you're in charge of the month, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm interested to see how next week plays out. And I'm also interested to have this conversation with you. This conversation being about the Babadook or next week's episode, you mean? No, um, the Babadook as gay icon is what I'm interested to talk with you about. Yes, we will be uh, not reviewing this film. We will instead be doing an anthropological study of the Babadook as a gay figure. Can't wait to dive into it. We're surely so very qualified to talk about this. It's it's part of like the Babadook, um, Lady Gaga. um, Basically on equal... Equal levels. 100%. I mean, they Dolly both Parton. have... A Dolly Parton. Um, Great sense of fashion. Oh, I, I, I don't... Uh, the, 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 the Klaus from Umbrella Academy? Yeah, I suppose so. What an interesting joke. <laughs> well, you did put men in there, so... Well, the Babadook, I guess, is not defined by any particular gender, so I suppose you're right. No, he, he is, because the book is Mr. Babadook. Ah, that is true. He is a mister. So we did have some, some fellas in the list already, but, you know, we'll, we'll maybe unpack the Babadook's status as a gay icon later on as we start talking more about that film, which, of course, will be the focus of today's episode. We've talked about two other supernatural horror films from a little bit around the world. Last week, we talked about Ringu, which very much not from the United States and not from Hollywood. It is from Japan. And before that, we talked about The Changeling, which, though it does star George C. Scott and is set in Seattle, was a Canadian production. So now we've gone from Canada to Japan, all the way to Australia, as we look at Jennifer Kent's feature directorial debut. Should be a good conversation we've later on We've been going west around the globe. Yeah, I mean, where does Australia sit coordinates-wise compared to Japan? Are they, like, on top of each other? Or is Japan, like, north of Australia? <laughs> I really don't know. It might be east. <laughs> oh, my. My, um, no. my Americanness is showing, I suppose. That's, that's... No, 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 no. If I go to Peru and I ask them where Idaho sits in relation to Wyoming, they're going to look at me with very dead eyes. Well, to be fair, if you ask them where Ottawa sat in, in relation to Ontario, they might not know either. I mean, Ottawa's... I don't know. Ottawa's, <laughs> Ottawa's a city... No uh, Ottawa's a city, in fact, in Ontario, so that's two strikes for me. <laughs> if you ask them where two particular states in a, or, or provinces in a particular nation were, you know, it might not sense but we're talking about countries here i mean australia is most of a continent for that matter I, I, i've i don't know if i mentioned this on the pod i speak to a lot of australians and uh, they tell me that there's nothing in the middle which is incorrect you know because the That's outback what... is in the middle oh you mean the middle of just australia of australia yeah. yes what... well the outback is there are people there there is life there animals and plants yes but it's there, there are no major cities there. sparsely populated this is true but the people who are Coming to California are probably people who live on the coastal sides of yes. Australia. Yes, I would guess so. I did confirm. Australia is due south of Japan. So, there we go. But east or west? It is due south. <laughs> I'm not sure how it works on a round globe, but on a flat map, the westernmost point of Australia and the easternmost point of Australia contain Japan. <laughs> So that's your geography lesson with a couple of dunces here on Cinema on Tap. And you learned that Ottawa is in Ontario. And you learned, if you're not a Canadian listener or just smarter than me, that Ottawa is a city in Ontario and not some province. You understand that we do have listeners from, given this breakdown, and and God bless you all wherever you are, who live in Northern Africa and in Europe. Shout out to those folks. They're, I think we have ones. one in Canada. I think once when I checked the stats, that there was one person in Canada. If you're out there, Canadian listeners, send us an email. We appreciate you. 
Now, Christian, as... And where you... And what what province you live in. Don't send us your address. That's creepy. <laughs> but send us what province you live in. And if it's nice. And if it's nice. Uh, maybe maybe they just want a dog on whatever place they live, <laughs> Christian. Of course, we are not here to discuss the geography of this great planet of ours. We are here to discuss horror films. And I know you had something that you wanted to introduce the episode with. We've been doing what you call tasters here on the show with our rebranding and doing a little bit of a three-ounce pour or something, just sort of intro the conversation. So, Christian, I turn it over to you. Okay. The taster is an... uh, It's an interesting thing that, for some reason, we have not discussed up until this point. And so, for our taster, I wanted us to just talk about how horror movies, for the most part, are metaphors. Massive metaphors with a very running theme being grief throughout it all. Now, it's not spoiling anything to say that The Babadook is very much based on grief. And grief is one of the key themes in dealing with grief and grief manifesting itself. That's 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 surface-level viewpoint of, of that movie. But, I mean, what, what did I put on here? That The Babadook is, is it is supernatural... Um, it's also a monster movie and uh, monster movies are a great place to uncover what some different themes are i mean we've discussed godzilla before godzilla was a manifestation of the view of nuclear weapons and the view of of the dropping of atomic bombs on japan look at king kong from 1933 which very much has undertones of colonization of colonization which have have withstood um the test throughout the decades look at vampires i mean vampires and this is pre-twilight many of them had to do with forbidden love and what it meant to be in a love where one person was actually a it's not just abusive but it's like the love would result in the blossoming of one and the destruction of the other or look at something like the fly which is a um i know that there are two iterations of them both of them which are representations of man's ego and the effects that man's ambition is going to take to them but what do you from the horror movies that you've seen and both of us now grow up watching horror movies what normally do you get a sense for when it comes to horror movies acting as metaphors you know i i mean as you have already identified in, in the things that you are talking about and the examples that you used, it can be anything. Because horror movies are movies. Which sounds like a silly thing to say. Of course they're movies. But the point being that just like any... Horror movies or cookies? Movies are not cookies, unfortunately. Because I like cookies and I love movies. So might as well merge the two. But just as with any genre, horror movies can be richly subtextual can make use of metaphors or they can keep it on the surface in the same way that many of our best dramas have a lot going on under the surface as well as great acting great writing good atmosphere or the way that even some of the best action movies have have things going on behind the scenes that are fun to think about more than just what's happening on screen horror is like any other genre where you can have these metaphors driving your enjoyment of the film beyond the more surface pleasures or it can be entirely surface pleasures and devoid of metaphor. And I have been watching a lot of sequels lately. I've watched multiple Friday the 13th sequels and multiple Nightmare on Elm Street sequels just as part of my October watching, which I, I kind of think, as can be expected with some franchising of horror movies, that any metaphors from the earlier movies in those franchises sort of get lost over time as you just have to keep making movies and killing teenagers you know where that doesn't work where you know where, where the metaphor is still there where scream in in, in, in what way because i think scream... the metaphor of of being meta i guess <laughs> that's not a metaphor but it's like, <laughs> like scream loves to be meta textual it's the, it's the mo of the franchise and if they lost that it would it would suck like the, that's what's fun about the screen movies is they're playing with what you already know about movies and, and how you know what's gonna happen yeah that's that's honestly why i love the fact that scream 6 didn't kill anyone because in scream 6 you're expecting someone to die at that point and that's what scream 5 did scream 5 did kill scream 6 they were like what if we didn't yeah they, but neither here nor there but yes every single horror movie um whether it be prior to now, whether it be now, is is 
great breeding ground for those dark things within the mind that we do not like to think about or talk about. Grief being one of the primary examples. Fears of, honestly, the, the idea of motherhood and Rosemary's baby. And what exactly that means. Have you seen Rosemary's Baby? I actually have not. Okay. Still on the watch list. And so, well, then the idea of sex in Scream. I mean, not just Scream, like in all slashers. One one of the, the core themes of the slasher genre is basically sex and death. And, and <laughs> it's been argued that the slasher is relatively conservative as a genre because, as is joked about in Scream, the characters who are sexually active are the ones who were killed, and the final girl is usually somebody who is resistant to having sex or is waiting for the right time with whoever they're with, and that is the person who survives at the end. And, of course, that's that's not a rule. That is a, a trend through slashers. There's many that play with that convention and break the rules. But, I mean, especially in Friday the 13th, <laughs> in those movies that I've seen, it's always the people who are sexually active who are getting killed in gruesome ways. Sometimes, while they are... Um, having sex and it's it's very hate common. to see it yeah hate to see it and very common in those in, in slasher movies for that to be a core theme and that's why you know you can say maybe there's some sort of metaphor with jason being this avenging demon who come who comes for the sexually promiscuous or whatever you want to say and there's smarter people than me who have written at length on this topic and scream is great because it plays with the rules while also sometimes abiding by the rules or knowingly breaking them and by making you aware of the rules within the movie you can then think about how the how scream is playing by or breaking the rules and i am can this be applied can these laws be applied to either the changeling or ringu because in the changeling it's the the supernatural element is is that of the previously deceased occupant of that house um what 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 exactly is that wrongness justice yeah i mean i think it's not so much under the surface with the changeling because as we talked about that it begins of course with george c scott's character losing his wife and daughter and then finding out that the person killed in this house who is the vengeful spirit he's trying to help find peace was also it was actually killed by a family member. And so there's some sort of added anger and, and righteousness, indignation, if you will, from because, his character. Because George C. Scott's um, George C. Scott's wife and daughter, that accident was not something someone could stop. And so because there's no way to seek justice there, the uh, supernatural manifestation within the house is something that he can try and find justice for. Uh, in Ringu, it's... You know, it's mainly children that are that are dying in Ringu, and they are teenagers or school children, and they're being killed by the ghost of someone who died within that school age. So it's also this this idea of what is fair and what is not fair. Why, I think, sorry. No, I, I was just going to say, why is it that she had to be othered, but these children are allowed to continue? And I think, too, with Ringo, Ringu, and this is a little bit of what I read into it about the movie after watching it, so not my original thought, but there is also this sort of... They're playing around with the, this, the fears around new technologies, and videotape and VHS, that's not new anymore. It is, it is very much outdated in 2023, so maybe it doesn't resonate as strongly as it does now, but there are people who wrote about how because this ghost, this timeless supernatural figure had now adapted and was using this new technology of the day to kill they the argument is that that is Hideo Nakata as the director reflecting this anxiety about new technology and fears that it will it will also kill us that new and innovation like innovative technologies despite how they might make our lives better or influence things for the positive are just as dangerous as old technologies and can be exploited I guess I accept someone trying to read it that way, but that isn't something that came to me at all. So I guess it just had to be a product of growing up with that kind of technology. Yeah, I mean, it didn't necessarily come to me either. I was, it's something I read about it after the fact, and I, as I was sort of thinking about it, I appreciated the, appreciated the reading of, of just finding more in, yeah. in that movie. 
uh, that being said, the last thing that I wanted to talk to us is about protection. This idea of the people who are trying to help each other and what the bond between them signifies within horror movies. Because if you're trying to survive in a horror movie, it normally means that there's a group of people who are trying to survive in a horror movie. So what does it mean for who it is that you're trying to protect? What does it mean that they are trying to protect you? And how does that add? Now, the examples that I'm looking at right now are the gang of friends in It. Um, it is also a movie you have not seen. I'm, I'm thinking... Correct. I, I have not engaged It in any way, unfortunately. I am a big fan of that movie. I know I've said that on this podcast before, but this group of friends who are going through their childhoodness, they're all, you know, not popular. They're all very much the ones who are made fun of, and they are also the ones who are being preyed upon by Pennywise. So what does it mean that they are the ones who are seeking to help each other when no one else will uh i mean outside of that the relationships and it follows now it follows very much so a movie about um talk about a metaphor talk, uh, <laughs> it um yes a, a movie for people who have not seen it follows it is about a a ghost or demon of some kind that will literally follow you, but usually it's a slow walking pace. So you cannot run it, but you can never ditch it. The only way to pass on the curse is by having sex, sex with, with someone. someone else. And the main character has sex with someone at the very beginning of the movie who then leaves her to be chased by this demon. So the very natural metaphor being about this anxiety of sex or not knowing the person you're sleeping with or the dangers of promiscuity. Again, like those are the ideas that these types of movies often play with. But also the friends on Scream and how every single one of those friends is trying to fit within one of the stereotypes that horror movies had about either the dumb blonde or the friend who wants to get with the main guy's girlfriend or the boyfriend as the prime suspect. And so they, they all offer, I, I guess this is less so of a conversation starter. This is much uh, more of a, a, let's talk about this right now, more so how will this factor on to the Babadook later on? Yeah, I mean, I think interestingly about this theme you're talking about is that like protection isn't the word that I would use. I would say community. And there are a lot of horror movies where you have a community that is ripped apart by a slasher villain, perhaps, or by a supernatural presence where some people believe and some people don't, and it's more of a metaphorical ripping apart if people aren't actually being killed. Or, on the opposite, there a very common theme in horror movies is isolation. Getting yeah. your main character in a place where they are alone, they are in danger, or where they're experiencing something that only they can see, or that only is after them. And it follows, we just brought up, the scariest part of that movie is that the demon or whatever you want to call it can only be seen by the person who's cursed. And so there's some great moments where the demon starts walking up on the main character, but her back is turned to it and her friends who are facing it can't see it. The, yes, the scariest part to me about it follows was the death of the first girl in the beginning of the movie. She's ripped apart and it's, it's not pleasant to look at. <laughs> I, th I guess, thankfully, don't remember the specific way that she is killed at the very beginning. Her limbs are but turned in ways limbs should not turn. It's Maybe it's coming back to me. But, yeah, there, there are a few moments that really got me from It Follows. But let's talk about some upcoming horror movies. I put down two. Okay. Thanksgiving. Yes. I still haven't watched the trailer. <laughs> Murders occur during Thanksgiving. Which... What's funny about Thanksgiving is it's actually based on a fake trailer. From, yes, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. For people who don't know, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez made movies uh, called Planet Terror for Rodriguez and Death Proof for Tarantino, and they toured them together and did this showing called Grindhouse, which was calling back to the Grindhouse theaters of the 60s and the 70s, where they would show these exploitation movies that Planet Terror and Death Proof were modeled on. And they also had some other directors like Eli Roth, for example, create fake trailers. So, you know, two or three minute little short films advertising movies that didn't exist. And Eli Roth's contribution was Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving themed horror movie that he has now officially turned into a feature and because is coming to us all these years Several later. of those trailers have been turned into movies. Uh, not all of them. but Several? Uh, yes, more than one. More than one has been turned into. I don't know how many, but more than one. Now I'm curious about this, because I know one was done by Edgar Wright, which is called Don't, which I... I ah, you're right! So the, the other one was Machete, 
which was yes. the Rodriguez film starring Danny Trejo, which not only was made into one movie, but actually got a sequel as well. And the character is technically from the Spy Kids movies. So yep. <laughs> taking a character who existed in family-friendly movies and putting him in decidedly not family-friendly movies. Go for it. But Edgar Wright's movie, or his trailer, never got turned into anything. The horror director Rob Zombie also made a trailer that had Nicolas Cage in it that didn't get turned into anything. But Thanksgiving is the latest arrival. And the, the I, I have no thoughts. I saw this trailer. It looks like it's fun. I don't know what the, I don't know, maybe it's anti-pilgrims, maybe I mean, it's anti... It's based in the present day, because it follows a Black Friday riot, and it stars Patrick Dempsey and Addison Ray. So that should I've be interesting. Seen, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen many episodes of Grey's Anatomy, and I've seen the movie Addison Ray was in, He's All That, which is... Which is um, Maybe the worst movie I've ever seen. I, I have I've heard very bad things. It it might be and, and not an exaggeration. I've seen hundreds upon hundreds. I don't know how many movies I've seen. It might be the worst one out of all of them. That's pretty cool. Good job, Addison Ray and the people who made He's All That. But that's Thanksgiving. It's about a Black Friday riot that goes bad, and then a serial killer shows up in where else but Plymouth, Massachusetts to do some killing around Thanksgiving. So, hopefully, people I, like it. Uh, Five Nights at Freddy's I'm actually kind of excited for because, okay, because I think the animatronics look kind of cool. Cool. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> I, Five Nights at Freddy's based on the long-running video game series, which, do you know anything about the series? I know that it takes place over five nights, but that those nights are in different eras or something no unfortunately but it's, it's <laughs> I, I have not, not played it the, I, I will say to your credit the games often take place in different times okay but the nights are sequential but yes you play as a security guard in the first game who is tasked with watching this creepy rundown Chuck E. cheese knockoff called freddy fazbear's pizza palace or something and the animatronic uh bear and his other friends try to kill you as a security guard and it, it blew up in popularity because it kind of caught YouTube at this perfect moment where people were doing all kinds of content around it, like called Let's Plays, where they're playing games and streaming their reactions to it right as this was starting to take off on YouTube. And so a lot of very famous people on YouTube made Five Nights at Freddy's videos because not only was it very scary and therefore entertaining seeing your favorite YouTubers freak out, but also the game is short. So you can do try to like play through the whole thing in only a couple of hours and the guy who made the games is named Scott Cawthon, who co-wrote the movie. And he was on a tear. He made something like eight Five Nights at Freddy's games in the, in a, in the span of, I want to say, less than ten years. Like, the first one had a sequel the same year. And then three and four came out the following year. So he was just cranking the, these bad boys out. And he has since stepped away, I think, from the franchise. But he put out... I mean, I actually undershot it. There's so many games that he made. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that they're just now getting to make a movie because the original game blew up in 2014. But who knows? I'm sure people are going to go see it. I'm sure it's going to pull in some box office because there's still a lot of fans of the franchise. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the animatronics are representative of the souls of lost children. That is, in fact, what uh, they are possessed by if you play the games. Which I have not done, but I have watched YouTubers play the games. <laughs> so, there you go. That just sounds awful. It's, uh, it, I, I'd yeah. rather just, them just be bears. Well, that's too bad. And there's a serial killer, and he kills kids, and then they possess animatronics, and they get their revenge on him, but then they're still haunted. So, Spoilers, baby, for Five Nights at Freddy's, depending on what our guy Josh Hutcherson gets himself up to in that movie, but there you go. It's weird that that movie's coming out with Josh Hutcherson, and there's a new Hunger Games movie coming out. Which is decidedly without Josh Hutcherson, in that it's set many years before the first Hunger Games movie, but I'm not really excited about it. I'm going to be real. I don't I'm even know if I'll all. see it. I've heard the book is not bad. Uh, let's let's start. Let's 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 go into. Yeah, let's let's make a very casual transition from Christian's disturbing thoughts about the Hunger Games franchise into the Babadook, which of course is Jennifer Kent's 2014 debut, as we mentioned at the top of this podcast. A 
a film starring Essie Davis, the Australian actress who people may recognize from Game of Thrones, among other places, and Noah Wiseman, playing her son. And it was a modest box office success as well, made on a budget of only $2 million and made over 10 at the worldwide box office. But it was not the biggest success in Australia, apparently. No, it was not. Most of its success came internationally. And indeed it did. I and think it premiered at see, Sundance. Yes, premiered at Sundance, which helped it get some international attention. And what was it? It was like, I think it made less than a million bucks in Australia. And what's interesting about that is that Jennifer Kent went on the record saying she was trying to make a movie that didn't have an Australian feel. Right. Even though, of course, the characters are speaking with Australian Australian accents. That's why she built it to be a Victorian type of house, which are not common in Australia. And there's not even a ton of, like, stereotypical Australian signifiers. Like, there's no references to kangaroos of any kind, except maybe on, like, a nature documentary, which... Okay, 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 okay. Or, like, okay. there's no Vegemite. There's no, like, anything. I, I don't mean to be so stereotypical. <laughs> is, that, is that what makes something authentically Australian? I'm, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's... there. There are things that we associate more with Australia than the United States, than they England. Were, they were driving on the opposite side of the road. But that happens in England. <laughs> so, so I'm just so, saying that, that, that like, there's nothing here that can only happen in Australia. Sure, that's true. Is, is what I was getting at. She wanted to make it feel universal. It could have been there or in England. Those are the two places. I mean, if you want to nitpick about which side of the car she's sitting on, sure. You're the one who says there are no kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> no trips to the outback. I mean, we don't know for sure that Bogduk isn't a kangaroo. Wouldn't that be so funny? That would be. (laughs) (laughs) The Bogduk is a kangaroo gone mad. Of course, Christian. Why don't you give the quick plot rundown for anybody who? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, The movie tells the story of a mother, Amelia, whose husband, Oscar. Now, this is O S K A R. Important to note. Spelling this dead man's name. Uh, Oscar died basically while they were on their way to the hospital to give birth to their son. Now there was a car crash. Yes, spontaneously combust. Yes, that's true. As I I know, everyone thought that he did, but he did not. (laughs) Now, uh, and now this is seven years later. Life is incredibly hard. She's trying to work to make ends meet, pay all of their bills, which she's not succeeding in. And this is made harder by the fact that her son is a piece of shit. Okay. And then what? Now I'm going to stop you right there. You have just referred to a six-year-old person, a six-year-old child, as a piece of shit. Yes. I'm going to tell you, you should not do that. Because six-year-olds categorically are not pieces of shit. You cannot tell me... You saw the first 45 minutes of this movie and didn't hate that child. I did not hate that child, Christian. Of course, he's incredibly annoying, but I didn't hate the kid. Okay. He's six. I think it is important to know that most people who watch this movie hate that child. And that is disappointing. That child is This is more about the people watching the movie than the child. That child pushed a little girl out of the treehouse, and that little girl kind of deserved it. Yeah, thank you. You're describing a situation where this girl is bullying her cousin, and he reacts like six-year-olds do. He keeps building weapons. Can a boy have interests and hobbies, Christian? Come on. But the... These, these are actual weapons. This is this is a movie about a supernatural entity may like possibly or possibly not haunting a single mother and her child, and the fact that he is apparently a skilled engineer is still the most unbelievable thing about the movie. <laughs> these are actual weapons, um, and uh, he he his voice is also just. It, it's it's like nails on chalkboard whenever he screams and yells and that, that is on purpose is on purpose <laughs> but so that you hate him no that no. is on purpose so that you hate him i, I actually no. okay now I, I to slow it down yes i think that your reaction to uh, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves and reviewing this movie our reaction is the way in which that mom starts to think about her son yes i think if you genuinely i did see some reviews as well people saying that they didn't like that they didn't like the character i haven't said 
I have not revealed up all my thoughts about yeah. the performance or what I think about the ultimate arc yes. of the character. I think what what is very important to note about a movie like this, which is, yes, about grief, but also about motherhood, and yes. especially about single motherhood. That's true. It is, it's important to note that this child is six years old and not... And it, with like, and with a mom who needs to constantly be working because yes. she is the only provider for this family. Yes. He, um, because of that, and he knows that his he knows that his father died taking his mother to the hospital to have him that's probably something he has not been able to process because he's six years old exactly so that that's why i i I think just i know we were kind of joking around this is less about you more about people who write about how much they hate this character or the child or whatever i I think it's actually a little bit frightening to say that you hate the six-year-old boy the six-year-old boy sucks and is written no and it is written for you to dislike him disagree so let's get into our review because i know you wanted okay. to start somewhere else but okay. we will we will get let's, we're gonna um let's let's did, did we oh we touched on everything else jennifer kent has only made one other movie called the nightingale which came out in 2019 i have heard it is punishing to watch so i mean it's 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 a rape revenge story yes and i've heard it's a one-timer from a lot of people who have watched it even if they appreciate it that it's it's not one you can go back to rewatch so i'm curious to check it out someday but okay it's, we're gonna start with a review. Um, you have an opening question. I do. I'm uh, I'm going to reveal some of my thoughts about this movie. That wasn't in the original opening question, so curious. Okay. Do you, I mean, do you wanna do you want me to just ask it with you going? I, in I want you to go. You're in charge here, boss. You have the driver's seat. You're sitting on the right side of uh, of the car right. on, on the left side of the road. So you tell me. And let's rewrite this opening question then. Um, you asked me if I find movies scary. Still, I found this movie scary. And when the Babadook was at the very top of the ceiling, not the second time, but the uh, not when he's coming down the chimney, when he's at the top of the ceiling, coming down, I actually had to cover my eyes. It, it, that, and that is impressive to me. Um, I think that this is the best movie of the three that we have seen. And now my question to you did you find this movie scary or what parts of this movie did you find scary? This movie is often terrifying, Christian. Yes. And I fully agree with you. It is the best movie we've watched this month. And there I'm really go. excited to talk about it with you. Yes, this the, the Babadook is incredibly, incredibly scary. And there, there are moments where watching this movie... I got what I often want to get from horror movies. And yes, sometimes I just want to watch Jason or Freddy kill some teenagers. And that's not particularly scary. But I do still want to be scared from that time. And watching The Babadook alone at night on my computer, there are moments where I could feel my heart pounding as I was watching an empty room. There are moments where I could feel genuine anxiety and nausea in my in my stomach. Yeah. Because I was so afraid of what was about to happen. And I think that masterful control of the tone, of the scares, of the environment, and building up this creepy house that just looks like a plain suburban house from the outside is just phenomenal work by Jennifer Kent. And it's a shame this is her debut movie because it feels like she should have made five, five, six, seven by now. And she's only gotten two features under her belt. But... Yeah, this is a very scary movie. <laughs> and my favorite of the month, for sure. Essie Davis is is the anchor for this. The, the two reasons why this movie is succeeding, um, outside of Jennifer Kent and what she was able to write and direct, are um, Essie Davis and, and the way in which the Babadook is portrayed. Now, she is... She's tired. From the very moment you see her, and this is made most apparent during the sleeping scenes, because what they do, every time she gets into bed, there is a time lapse. And she wakes up, and it literally feels like someone has just closed their eyes, gone, tried to go into REM, and someone's shaking them awake, even though she's asleep. She's been asleep for hours. It, you, you just feel the exhaustion seeping off of her. And that ties in very well with how this kid is written for you to hate him within the first half. And in the second half, for you to view him as a victim. Or not as a victim, but someone who... Is, as a victim, I would say. Okay, I, I, I would also say as someone who... 
someone who's innocent. I I I, I would uh, also put in there because he's noticeably less annoying in the second half of this movie and that's on purpose he noticeably shows much more love towards his mother he noticeably is much more obedient and so it feels like the first 45 minutes you are watching not just this kid but all of the other kids and all of the other adults in this movie through the perspective of this tired woman yeah i mean tired is an understatement like i know i know it's not what you're i know you know this but and she is exhausted and this movie throughout and you see how that wears on her and how it wears in the way that she treats Samuel her son and it what Ken does so well at the beginning of the movie is that it's not scary out of the gate the Babadook as a figure is introduced through this sort of creepy possibly haunted children's book that makes an appearance probably 20 or 25 minutes into the movie. What you get at the beginning is just Amelia's life, which involves, of course, being a single mother who doesn't look like she has a big support system. She has a very sweet old lady living next door, and her sister lives in town with her niece, but she's not very supportive, uh, the sister, that is, living a very suburban lifestyle, hanging out with other moms and not as engaged in her sister's life. We, we do find out that they have not actually come to visit Amelia and Samuel at their house. So Amelia is always going to them or going to meet them at a park or something like that. Amelia works as a caretaker for old folks. Yo, and there's home. this one dude who keeps hitting on her. Shout out to that guy. Who, <laughs> 45 minutes into the movie, just disappears. And, and he does, unfortunately. But Again, I like them. I, I do. I do like him as well. But we see that job too. Again, she's still taking care of people. Very intentional job for her to have. Her boss hates her. And her boss hates her. Her boss does not treat her fairly. And is threatening probably to fire her because she had to call out because she's sick. Because she's, she's so exhausted. She had to take um, Samuel out of school because he... What is it? He he was it just that he made a weapon in school that could have been used on some of the other yeah. children. He has he has these weapons throughout the movie. One of them is sort of like a a backpack catapult that can fling a ball at you. One is like a handheld crossbow kind of situation. I think that's the one he made in school. I'm right. not entirely sure. And he gets in deep trouble naturally for having a weapon at school and the the administrator and the teacher are not very understanding of their situation and Amelia pulls him well, to school. They they said we're going to put him with a monitor, which means that they were gonna put him in a separate room with someone to supervise him during the day as yeah. he studied, which uh, Amelia thinks would have othered him. Um I would have said try it out for a couple days. See how it works. Maybe. But I think what we get from Amelia is that she is not just physically exhausted by the demands of her life. Obviously, being a parent, I'm not a parent yet, but I know that being a parent is very tiring. Even if you are in a house with two parents who are taking care of the kid or the kids, it's still very tiring. And so to do it all on your own, plus working a full-time job, that is an exhausting life. But her life is also not just physically exhausting, it is emotionally exhausting as she we find out, is still dealing with the grief of her husband dying. Especially Beyonce, shortly after she had her child, headlined Coachella. Congratulations to Beyonce. She is not. She does not appear in this film. <laughs> <laughs> but not only, of course, does Oscar, her husband, die, he dies on the way to the hospital to give birth to Samuel. So Samuel's very existence is tainted by the fact that his father died the day he came into the world and amelia cannot separate and the and and that's what the little girl that he pushes out is his is, cousin. Ta- yeah. is 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 taunting him with saying um you're the reason that your dad died or everyone else has a dad you don't which again shout out to little kids they will hit you where it hurts <laughs> they know how to bully each other you know <laughs> Man, if Beyonce was in this movie, which part should she get? No opinions on that, Christian. I don't think that she would fit into this movie. Much love and respect to Beyonce. <laughs> this does not call for a pop star cameo. <laughs> and so, the reason I am so strongly resisting yeah. um, 
calling Samuel a bad kid or uh, saying that he is like a character to be hated is I think he he is he is not at the end of the movie but he Correct. is in the beginning he so is what, ma- all of his negative are... attributes are pushed forth and yeah. you hating him is what the mother is trying to fight against that she herself is feeling so again i did not hate this this child in the first 45 minutes i found him very annoying he is very disobedient but we know that this kid has a dead dad who died driving in the hospital. And that is something that will hang over his life, especially because his mother has unresolved grief about it, which affects the way that she looks at her child. And yes. And so yes. You, you you like But she's can... also accentuating the most negative parts of him. Yes. And that so that's what's key is that we're seeing the hard parts about being Samuel's mom amplified by getting Amelia's perspective. Exactly. And as you've identified, you have as you already said, they are Samuel is so much softer, so much sweeter as a boy. Gets the less lines of dialogue in the second the, half of the movie. This and is I think also it's, it's key because we're we're starting to see it him as he is and less as he is filtered through this what, horrible way that Amelia is experiencing everything in her life, not just him. I'm going to shout out something that Jennifer Kent did. Now, there are times in which um, Samuel is very, very much yelled at by his mother. In those scenes, Samuel, the the character of um, the, the his actor Noah, was not used. It was an adult stand-in, well, basically on his knees, because she said... A childhood should not be ruined in a movie. She um, gets possessed by the Babadook. We haven't even touched on the Babadook yet. We'll get to it in a second. She um, gets possessed by the Babadook and starts to yell at him, calls him a piece of shit, calls him just the worst names, asks him why he can't be quiet. And this is at a very loud register. And uh, this is responsible filmmaking. To be like, you know what? A little kid should probably even, while acting, he probably doesn't fully grasp what acting is. So we shouldn't have someone saying this to him. We will swap him out. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that I read that. Yeah, it, I mean, it says a lot about Jennifer Kent, willing to make her, you know, making this feature debut in the middle of her life. She's not like a 29-year-old, 20, you know, fresh out of film school, hotshot. She had to wait quite some time to finally make this debut happen. She has a small budget and still takes that extra step to go the extra mile and take her cast. Uh, I think I saw, too, that Noah Wiseman's mother or you know parents or whoever it was were off like were on set with him whenever he was on set and yes they swapped him out for those scenes which is just a great way to take care of the character and in the moments where they had to have both of them or where they would cut to his reaction shots and they had to use him <laughs> they would have uh sc davis say funnier things uh and still mean but not nearly as bad as some of the things she says in the movie like she would say that your she, fart smells not that but that she would like if he didn't start behaving she would take all of his legos and throw them away like those those kinds of things to get noah wiseman to emote and make the kind of face that we needed the character to make so very responsible filmmaking uh, especially in taking care of a, a young person yeah, this movie. loves legos and funko pups I'm trying to relate to what you're saying. I'm trying to form a connection. By derailing our conversation? Now, the Babadook. <laughs> yes. Now, one day, um, so a, 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 a tradition that they have, not traditions, something that they do is before they go to bed, they choose out a book. And one day, Amelia at, says, Samuel, you can choose what book we're going to read. And he chooses this book called Mr. Babadook. And it's a very disturbing book that depicts a um, monster who begins to... Well, it, it depicts a monster, and when kids learn about it, it begins to basically terrorize them. Now, once they read this book, um, she notices that it is disturbing. She basically uh, throws it away, well, rips it apart, throws it away. And uh, they st- she starts to see hints of the Babadook all around. She starts to see his coat randomly. Now, yeah, he has this like distinctive trench coat and top hat look, which you may know that about the movie because it became an internet meme in some respects, but has this look that she starts seeing yes. around town. Uh, claw, razor claws stuff things yeah. for hands. It's very creepy. Like, they look like gloves, but they're pointed. Yes. It's, yeah, creepy. 
And uh, there's, she starts to see this. She starts to get less and less sleep. Sam, she's still taking up Samuel because he can't go back to school because he doesn't have school yet. And, and um, we should say too that oftentimes they'll read a book when Samuel wakes up after having a nightmare in the middle of the night. Yeah. Like at the very beginning of the movie, we see him wake up because he thinks there's a monster under his bed. We don't know about the Babadook yet. He just, this is a very normal kid thing to do is get scared of the monster in your closet or under your bed. And so they have this moment where he has woken her up in the middle of the night and to help him calm down, she reads a book and then he finally falls asleep. And so these are, this is happening throughout. And that's when we get to the Babadook. So, she, you know, she's, she's very tired, of course, at the beginning of the movie and then starts to become exhausted as Samuel is truly terrified of the Babadook and can't even sleep almost at all. Now, the Babadook causes a couple of things to happen. It puts glass in her soup. Or does it? I, 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 I think Ooh. it does. No, I, I think it does. <laughs> it's this great little bit where she has made Samuel dinner, steps out of the room, comes back and takes a bite of their soup that they're eating, and she has this like glass in her mouth. And, so, and she has had a disagreement with Samuel. She's gotten mad at him. And so very real possibility that Samuel put it in there, of course, but... If you also, think Samuel put glass in her soup, then you must agree he's a piece of shit. No, I don't, Christian. He's a six-year-old child. And also, I don't there think he put are... glass in her soup. I think the Bible did. Exactly. No, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm sorry. If you put glass in your mother's soup at six years old, you still suck. You have a frightening way of conceiving of six years old, I suppose. Maybe it's because my wife is a kindergarten teacher and deals with five and six-year-olds all day long. I have a little bit longer leash on their conduct. I, but. I, 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 I'm an equal opportunist for all people, regardless of that. I don't see age. You should when it's a six-year-old child. No, I, I... Again, I will say, Samuel is a misbehaved, disobedient, hard-to-parent child. I but also, we see that he goes through... My own children. He Same. And he goes through ebbs and flows like all kids do, where he starts the movie bad, ends the movie But sweet. I don't have all of my own children. I'm just going to leave it at that. I, I just hope that you don't call your future six-year-old children pieces of shit, Christian, of when they're not. disobedient. Be, no, they're going to be raised by me. They're going to be great. Oh, dear Lord. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> the Babadook is putting glass in soup. He's making knocks at doors. He makes house. her crush her car. Oh, yes. Yeah, we... the, the So, I guess what gets creepy about this earlier is before... Before we know what's going on with the Babadook, Samuel alleges that he is seeing the monster. He, he is convinced that he is yeah. seeing the Babadook. And so Amelia, for a very big portion of the movie, thinks that he is just exaggerating this normal fear that he has of seeing a monster. But we do see at one point that Samuel gets so frightened that he actually, like, it's not quite a stroke, but has this sort of freak out where his body clenches up, he falls over in the backseat of the car, and she has to pull over, get him out, and... and and ask someone to call for help. And so we're really starting to wonder what's going on. Like, is the Babadook this real entity that is haunting Samuel and Amelia, or are they just exhausted? And, and the doctor that the OC even says that Samuel had, I forget the name of the condition, but basically his brain just overheated, and, and he had uh, this episode because of it. This this movie makes make, takes a stand that the Babadook is real, is what it is saying. And you, you can tell that by the ending. Now, there are two specific scenes. Uh, well, actually, there are several scenes, but we don't have time to touch on all of them. Um, the Babadook possesses her. And I think the most frightening scene is that the first time that it tries to possess Amelia, it basically goes to the top of the ceiling. She is covering herself up with her with, with um, her covers, and then she lowers them, and you see the Babadook kind of extend it, its arms in its trench coat, lower its hands and then quickly descend and it is it looks like a cutout cartoon i i want i'm so glad you brought this scene up because it's at, it's some of the best just like actual filmmaking yeah in the movie and, and it's the way that jennifer kent makes this moment happen is so fantastic um before we even have this creature show up of course we're getting this repeat shot of just an empty room. And it's it's such a good use of, of space and of set design where you have this wardrobe that's open up and there's a mirror in the back of it that Amelia uses to get ready. Mm -hmm. And so the room looks bigger because you have this mirror on the back wall and the door is to the room is also in the shot. And you're hearing these knocks at the door and this monster trying to get in. And like I said, it's terrifying looking at an empty room. <laughs> 
where we don't know what might go bump in the night and come out at her. And then the Babadook itself enters the movie Ooh. and crawls in the ceiling. Yes. And and like you said, like the cardboard cutout almost comes at her. And it, it's, I, the way that I thought of it is it's like they took the film and cut out like a bunch of frames in between. So it looks like jump cuts as it, as it, it sort does. of like coming at her. And it's such a, just a frightening way of depicting this attack. Because obviously it's not what we're used to watching movies. It's not this fluid motion. It feels otherworldly in the filmmaking. And of course it's not using these like crazy CGI effects to do it. It's just pure craft. There is a second scene where the Babadook attacks her. Um, this second scene is more disturbing to me. And you actually see the outline of the Babadook almost as a real person walking towards her in the hallway. She rushes up to her room. She closes it. There's a chimney in that room. The Babadook's, like, hat falls down from that chimney. She gets on the floor. She starts to crawl away. Um, she's blockaded that door with a chair. She's trying to go to it. And then all of a sudden, like, she just lays down. Because you can tell that um, the Babadook is possessing her. I'm going to post to you that this is... Um, this is a question I have about the movie. Maybe it's the one thing holding me back from thinking this is a masterpiece. Maybe it's just something I don't fully understand. That scene is framed, shot a little bit like a rape scene. Like the, the stridulation is going on. She's crawling on her knees and something is attacking her from behind. Um, believe it or not, I've actually written a paper on the Papadook for film school. And so that... It was kind of like, what is the use of sound? And it talked about the stridulations. So basically, when you think about a cricket or think about um, a, a, a grasshopper, any, I don't know if those are the same thing. Basically, something that is doing that that um, chirping type of sound. That is what the Babadook composes. She is on all fours. She is rushing and uh, she is turning away. And they keep saying that they don't want the Babadook to enter her. And it felt like all of that was also a putting her in a point of submission, making it look like a like a rape. Um, it, it's it's obviously not raping her. It's just that that kind of feels like the setup in order for you to get a higher impact, I guess. And I'm not entirely happy with that. And it's just that one scene, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. I, I, frankly, like, just don't, I don't even, I can't, like, conjure it in my head, because I never, I didn't get anything close to that. Okay. Um, and, and certainly, you're allowed to interpret the scene that way. Like, I don't, I don't think it's crazy, because as with any possession, really, like, you have to be careful when invoking something like a rape or a sexual yeah. assault. Um, but the idea of possession, the idea of other entities taking over human bodies, like there, there is some common ground there. So I, it's a, it's a violation. A, yeah, yeah. A violation, uh, control being exerted over you against your will. Yes. And I didn't necessarily get that from the scene, but of course, like I, I wouldn't say that you're a fool for, for getting it yourself. Um, I, we also don't need to dwell on it. I just it, it's always struck me as a weird scene I because actually, she's crawling on yeah. all fours. When I I it's my one question about the movie. Why didn't you get up? Yeah, I you know I don't know, and and I think I wouldn't necessarily think it crazy if Jennifer Kent was going for that because I think that she as an artist is not afraid to touch on taboo grounds. Well, right and. The, the movie itself, you know, about the single mother who is exhausted from the death of her husband and this uh, disobedient young child that she feels that she is burdened with and has him. And this life that it, it feels like we're catching at the worst period of her life, uh, aside from the death of her husband that's crumbling around her. You know, Jennifer Kent, when doing some interviews about the movie, said that, um, as the movie you alluded to, like, it drifts into this angle of abuse where... Yeah. She is, she is screaming and shouting uh, violent things and profane things at her child, which is, at bare minimum, verbal abuse. There, there is parental abuse in this movie. And 
it is an important part of the story because as Jennifer Kent says in her interviews, she had women come up to her after the movie when, I mean, she had been called on how controversial this depiction is. Um, and yet she had women come up to her after the movie and not say like, thanks for condoning the way that I abused my child. That's not what they were saying. But they were saying like, at my worst, I felt like I wanted to do that. And I know it was, I like, I know it was wrong and I felt so guilty about it. And I felt like I couldn't say anything about it. I, I know art which is, even that would speak to me about this, which is... Which are words that she herself says because they yeah. accuse her of not moving on from Oscar. And she goes, I have moved on. I never mention him. Which is is not, you know, moving on. Not moving on, yeah. But it is a... The depiction of grief is not someone who is constantly crying over something that happened, but someone who is trying to lock it away. Um, and Like uh, the, the basement of their house is where she's keeping all of Oscar's things. And Samuel can't even go down there. She gets uh, mad at him the one time he does. When they defeat the Babadook, they... It, it, it's so odd, and I kind of love it also, though. They defeat the Babadook. She realizes that her love for her child is important. Despite and she, Yo, she kills the dog. She kills Bugsy. It's just, I, I hope people have watched the movie, because there's some spoilers coming fast and furious. But, yeah, I'm very uh, not happy about that. <laughs> I'm not happy Especially about after she gets the... Mr. Babadook revised edition that includes pictures of her attacking or killing the dog and killing Samuel and killing herself. You start to see that come true and it just gets even more frightening as you realize she's possessed and you don't know what she's going to do. They locked the Babadook up in the basement. That's... Yes, the Babadook is expelled but not destroyed. Which I think is just a very, very overt metaphor for... You defeating your grief doesn't mean that all of it is gone. It just means that you recognize you are better than your grief, that you are stronger, or that you're not going to let it overtake you. Instead, you can overtake it. Like that's—I mean, I think it's very obvious what that's going for. I would, like how would I, I think we're on the same same page, different paragraph? Because I wouldn't even call it like destroying or defeating your grief. What I would say is learning to live with it, and. Like one of the most curious details at the end is that Samuel... They're feeding it? Yeah, they're, they're like pulling up these earthworms and putting them into a bowl. And it's like they're keeping the Babadook as a pet down in the basement. Uh, I love that, though. And again, yeah. And again, the... Like, it is obviously in the basement, not just to keep it away from the rest of the world, but also because that's where Oscar's stuff is. That's where the grief lives in that house. And Amelia is learning to live with her grief and nurturing it almost. And I'm, I'm lucky enough in my life that I've not had to endure something that gave me severe grief or severe trauma. But You've never fought the Babadook? I've never fought the Babadook, Christian. But, you know, like... You never screamed at your two dogs that way? No, I do not scream at Ruby and Josie that way. But, um, like, learning to live with your grief is, is part of it. It's... Very rarely for people does the the loss of someone that you love just completely leave you. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's it's different when someone dies when you're young and you become old. I'm sure it's different, you know, as you have decades to get past it. But the traumatic death of your husband, like, that is going to take a very, but very long time to move through. And I think it's more than that. I think it's also the way in which she viewed her son. I think that, I, I don't think it's just the death of her husband. I think it's the... Um, the fact that she knows her life is hard. The fact that she knows taking care of this child by herself is hard. And how she is also... She's not just learning to live with the fact that her husband died. She's learning to live with the fact that this is her life. And that's a different kind of monster. Um, you know, I think that, like... I feel very, very high about The Babadook. I, I think it's a I, phenomenal I, film. And, I and like you, I'm, I'm close to like, this may be a masterpiece. Maybe if I ever see it again, which I don't know if I want to, but maybe if I ever do. I think what's powerful about it is that there are actually, there. there's a lot more to the metaphor or metaphors that Jennifer Kent is working with and I think some people give it credit for. Yeah. Um, we have the whole grief angle, which is the most apparent, the most on the surface, but is still artfully done. And, and especially horror as a genre deals with grief a lot. This monster or the specter that comes for you and overtakes you because you're, you're too sad about whatever has happened. But it's a very 
uh, unique and fascinating depiction with this Babadook creature. But you also have the angle of, like, um, like single motherhood specifically also. The, sure. the way that you can feel isolated and alone when you are forced to live that life. Uh, you have the angle of the abuse. And, and I think what's interesting is, we didn't really get into it too much, but I think we also have a bit of a perspective shift as we go from Amelia to Samuel, and we start yes. to see things through his eyes, and we experience it's what weapons it must... come in handy at the end of... and, do they do? and, and the, experience... even the weapons are like their own form of metaphor of building your own way to fight to deal that with grief. your situation yes. yeah and we see how samuel experiences his mother as an abuser in this way and, and he'll have to carry that with him although thankfully they end on in like a happy way i even read a letterboxd review where somebody was calling out the ways that they felt that babadook and the way that it possesses amelia can represent drug addiction and how they felt that Amelia dealt with an addiction to, uh, they said, methamphetamine. So dealing with a meth addiction to cope from the death of her husband. And there's these little notes that they leave Did along she? the way. She Did never she uses, do meth? No, she never uses drugs in the movie. But there are little okay. little hints dropped that you can interpret that way. And I think the Babadook, is, as a movie, not just, yeah. the, fig, not just the character is open to a variety of interpretations. And the last thing that I'll say, truly the last thing, I literally cried watching this movie. Not from fear. Oh, I didn't. I cried, but I cried emotional tears uh, because there is a moment where Amelia uh, is sort of free of the influence of the Babadook, puts Samuel behind her and screams at this monster to leave them alone. Um, and to me, that really powerfully represented what it must feel like as a person dealing with grief or some kind of trauma to scream back into the void that seems to be screaming at you constantly to sort of take back power and agency in your life and and to say i will not go i will not give up i will take back my life and i but will start this process to me that's not even the most emotional part of this movie the most I, emotional just, part yeah, it's, it's to, me, is, to me like is, that's the is the the neighbor coming over and saying look um if you ever need anything, let me know. I love you and I love Samuel both so dearly. Sweet Mrs. And Roach. Because it was also that your grief can cloud your view of how others must view you. And it takes that also reminder from the outside of like, yeah, we know you're going through something hard, but you also are having a more negative view of yourself than other people are having a view of yourself. I'd love to talk for like 10 more minutes about how but, I think... But we're not going to, and this is going to be the end of the conversation. <laughs> about how I think that there's there's a true way to interpret this movie as if the Babadook is completely not real and it's all in her head. I, I, and like that's yet another thing that I think makes this almost well, actually, just a masterpiece. Um, okay, so let's like say that it gets recast and Beyonce becomes Amelia and then we replace Noah with Blue Ivy and then... She's, she's too old. Well, you know, this is years ago. So we're going back in time to 2014. Yes, and then Jay Z is Oscar. How would that? Do you find this funny? I just want to know. Is this funny? I to do. You? I, it, it brings a massive I'm, smiles. I'm bearing my heart and soul to you, and you've now twice. I have. I have every single thing that you have spoken i have had a serious conversation with you i have defended every single one of my points i have told you that what you are saying is correct that we both love this movie in different ways can, can you not let me have my fun in this different times grief is a serious topic christian we can't have fun with grief tisk tisk for shame that's the Babadook. <laughs> we have fun here on Tap talking about grief. And the Babadook is available to stream on Hulu right now, and as well as Canopy. Possibly. I streamed it on Canopy. Christian streamed it on Canopy. So if you don't mind that we spoil things for you, or you just want to rewatch this movie, check it out on Hulu or Canopy. And with that, we have just one week left in this, in this keg. And I've already told you, and I've told the listeners what we're going to be doing. Next week, we'll be doing an episode that I'm calling The Untapped Keg, where we're going to be looking at lesser-known supernatural movies, so lesser-known horror movies that deal within this type of supernatural horror, and uh, discussing them. Uh, we're going to try and stay away from big titles, and instead give you all some hidden gems within it, that can satisfy the it'll wait next week's episode next week's episode yes next week's episode will come just four or five days before halloween 
So be your if you are needing something to check out for for the holiday, this is what we're gonna recommend. Yeah, hopefully just in time to get get your uh, your spooky scary feelings on for Halloween. We'll get you get you nice prepped and ready with some scary movies. Amazing. Now lead us off, Scott. That's right, folks. That is our show. So if you are still with us here listening to our chit-chat about the Babadook, thank you so much for staying here. We're so glad that you've hung through through this discussion. I look forward to talking some hidden gems next week. Of course, until next time, there are a few things that you can do to support the show. Number one, please do subscribe and leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners on all these different platforms and just makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. You know, it's October. You like to be scared, but sometimes it's, it's nice to feel happy. Sometimes it's nice to put a smile on someone else's face. And make that someone else Christian Ubius as he sees those, those five-star reviews rolling in. You can also send us an email to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. Especially if you have a horror movie that you love that you think is a hidden gem and want to recommend it to more people. We'd love to get those kinds of recommendations to share with others here on the show. So please send us your thoughts about hidden gems, supernatural movies, or just hidden gem horror movies in general to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Beyonce's sister Solange could be Amelia's sister. It's all it, it It's all, all coming together. Yeah. It's all coming together, Christian, and Taylor Swift will be the Babadook. Until I'm okay with that. <laughs> Until next time, folks. This has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening.